The Cerrado region is, it's like the most underrated rainforest in the world. In Brazil, you think of the Amazon, right? In this case, the Cerrado holds equivalent of 13.7 billion tons of CO2. That's equivalent to China's annual emissions. The annual emissions in China is equivalent to the amount being drawn down in the Cerrado rainforest. So how do we protect that? Well, there's a problem there in the sense of landowners are allowed to deforest 80% of their land. Well, we need to incentivize that not to happen. Just we need to think of this land ownership in the same way we think of carbon budgets and carbon credits. Because if we don't, we're just gonna have a whole lot of land deforested. We're not gonna hit any of our climate goals and everything's be a lot more expensive in the end versus being proactive about it in supporting landowners and farmers right now. That's environmentalist Nicholas Carter, and this is episode 116 of the Proof Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. I hope you've been keeping well and enjoyed last week's episode with Thomas King on cellular agriculture. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show. It's a pleasure to be with you and hopefully following today's episode, we can make this a regular thing going forward. By way of background, I am a qualified sports physiotherapist and nutritionist and I post nutrition tips to plantproof.com and on social media, mainly Instagram under the account plantproof to help people become more conscious about their food choices and upgrade their health. Each week on this show, I sit down with a different guest, with guests that range from professional athletes to medical doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, neurologists and cardiologists, environmental scientists, animal activists, and people who have overcome chronic illness. Today's episode is a continuation of the planetary health theme that I've covered with various guests over the past few years on this show. This time we have environmental researcher Nicholas Carter joining us again to talk about the results from new research published by White Oak Pastures, one of the more vocal farms creating hype around regenerative meat Of course, with the results from a study performed on their farm being published in peer-reviewed literature, I was interested to get Nicholas back on to see whether they changed his opinion on this method of farming and where he sees regenerative agriculture and holistic grazing in the overall conversation about climate change and global warming. We also speak about regenuary a movement out of the UK started by the grass-fed meat industry to rival Veganuary and look at some of the claims they've made. As always, these conversations aren't about cheap shots. I genuinely want to explore these claims and go through what is and what isn't supported by evidence. As you can really say anything on social media, these long format conversations allow for a deeper look at the subject matter and the perspective that I feel we all need to make logical, evidence-based decisions. So with that said, let's dive straight into this one and I'll see you on the other side for a debrief.
One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Nicholas Carter, welcome back. Thanks for having me. The last few times we've spoken, we've touched on regenerative agriculture. And in particular, this, this part of regenerative agriculture called holistic grazing or holistic management, uh, which is a sort of new label used by the, the grass-fed beef industry to speak to a specific type of, of ruminant animal grazing, mainly cows, that is. Uh, and, and they sort of position it as a key solution to, to sort of mitigating climate change, I guess. And you've helped clear a lot of confusion about holistic grazing in the previous episodes that we've done. But since then, there's been some new developments in this area. So I thought it'd be a good idea to reconnect, continue that conversation and um, help clear a little bit uh, more confusion because this is certainly a very topical area uh, right now when it comes to our diets and, and planetary health. Most notably, in terms of things that have transpired since we last connected is a new study 
on a farm that is using regenerative agriculture called White Oak Pastures, which has for a long time been claiming that their beef is carbon neutral. And, and then also a new movement out of the UK called Regenuary or Regenuary, which has sort of positioned itself as a rival to Veganuary, which of course is a huge movement where for the month of January, uh, people eat a vegan diet. Their argument being that a regenerative diet that includes regenerative meat uh, is better than a vegan diet. So I thought there's a, there's a bit in there. Uh, I thought perhaps we start with white oak pastures and the new peer-reviewed paper that's been published and then let's move on to Regenuary and, and some of the claims that they're making and, and whether those claims are supported by science. So tell me about White Oak Pastures and, and the new paper, what it tells us about regenerative beef as a, as a solution to climate change. So I was excited for this new paper because um, when I was analyzing the Qantas, uh, which is the environmental group that reviewed the first version of the carbon neutral claims, uh, you know, I questioned it for a number of reasons. It wasn't peer-reviewed. Uh, it was funded directly by White Oak Pastures and uh, General Mills. So it's, it's very much an industry study. And um, it wasn't just because of that that I, you know, had issues. There was issues with the methods they use. So I knew this peer-reviewed version was coming out, so I was excited for it. As of no surprise, they concluded overall it's not carbon neutral, right? They're not, they're not a carbon negative firm. They, they, do, they did say in the study that they were offsetting a large percentage of greenhouse gases. And, uh, and I'll tell you how they did that. But they also concluded that they used 2.5 times more land than conventional meat production. And, you know, if anyone listened to the last podcast we did together, land use is such an important topic when it comes to greenhouse gases and biodiversity for that matter. This is the thing that we need to think about in tandem with greenhouse gases because it's land that's going to sequester carbon, right? It's land that's going to, uh, it's really our best way of drawing down carbon and enhancing biodiversity. So, uh, so this study showed it used a lot more land. It showed they offsetted uh, emissions generally by adding in uh, compost to the land for the first three years. Uh, not adding, but this was on on-site compost. They brought in feed crops from off-farm to feed the chickens and pigs. And uh, to me, that's akin to taking nutrients from another land and adding it to yours, right? So they kind of framed the overall study as if it's like a self-contained farm, but in, in many ways it's not because there is feed crops coming to feed their, their uh, monogastric animals. And, uh, and then, so I can kind of break that down, the manure from the chickens and pigs are then added to the land. And this manure comes with a lot of greenhouse gases in, in terms of uh, nitrous oxide, but it also can add carbon temporarily to the soil. So overall, this new version of the study was, you know, very much a more realistic take on what should be pitched in terms of the regenerative agriculture movement. Um, I don't necessarily question the scientific integrity of the authors of this. I think they, they're generally trying to be accurate, but uh, I question a lot of the uh, very niche focus of the methods they use. And uh, the, the niche way, like they even added in a line, for example, that's, that said, importantly, if we assign 
the carbon sequestration to cattle alone, then they could be carbon negative. And that line specifically, I mean, you even brought that up with me uh, um, uh, earlier. And that, that line specifically, there's no precedent for, for saying that in the study. There's no, there's no link. There's no reference provided to it. So I could take any animal on that farm and assign the carbon to it and provide no reference and say that that animal, whether maybe it's a rabbit, maybe it's a chicken pig, that's carbon negative, but there's no precedence to that. So just to, to break that down, I guess, to the listeners, if they're maybe hearing this for the first time or second time, because it is a lot of, of information. What we're talking about here, and just correct me, I'm going to summarize it, is that the regenerative farming practices used by white oak pastures. The idea is that this method of farming draws down carbon and stores it into the soil, right? And that would be a great thing because more carbon in our atmosphere is contributing to the warming of our planet. And per the you know, 2015 Paris Agreement, it's, it's commonly understood and accepted that we need to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the environment in order to prevent heating to a level where we start to see very catastrophic things happening. So the idea is that it's the farming practice pulling this in from the atmosphere. But what you're saying is that some of the carbon that they're measuring in their soil is actually not being pulled down from the atmosphere, but is coming into the farm via feed. Is that right? Is that one of the things you're saying? So there's... An interesting part of the study is they didn't measure a lot of different aspects to draw down carbon. All they measured is what they think overall the picture will be. But they didn't look at, like, they had, there's some trees in this farm. They didn't measure how much typically that type of tree would draw down for carbon, which we know trees are the best form of drawing down carbon uh, overall, like total carbon, like in the soil and above the ground with the, the biomass itself. So they didn't look at each individual level. Certainly, I am saying what you said there, like they brought in nutrients from off firm onto the firm and were kind of acting like it was a self-contained system, but it's not. That's, you can add nutrients to, to any firm to help grow vegetation, which will help draw down carbon. I know that you've also commented on like carbon saturation of soil and what happens over time. Did this paper look at that specifically? They, so, so they did. This is what they did over like uh, taking a, um, almost plots of land. They would take measurements to show how much, uh, you know, carbon would be stored in that plot of land. So kind of how much restored it has been. And I, I think of note is before, this was a very degraded piece of land. It was um, a combination of, I think, cotton and one other type of cropping done in like a very monoculture, very intensive style. So, if you take an older style of farm, whether it's overgrazed or farmed in some sort of very intensive way, there's many ways to make it better, right? And typically doing a number of things that they do will make it better, but it'll saturate over time. There'll be a point where it'll get better and then it'll kind of level off, right? And there's lots of studies to show this. It's probably not going to plateau 100%, but it's certainly not going to continue sequestering carbon indefinitely. And it's been showed that even when it does, sequester carbon in the ground, that it's very time limited. And, and that goes for any way of sequestering carbon, right? Is So would the idea be that you want to reach carbon saturation in a way that along the way produces the least amount of emissions into the atmosphere? 
Absolutely. So, I mean, with, with cattle, you're always going to be emitting methane. The more cattle, the more methane you're going to have. If you're comparing it to a forest, of course, you want it to be a you know native forest that's protected, that um, stores it deep in the soil there. And it's not going to be disturbed. It's not going to be you know cut down. It's going to be managed in a, in a sustainable way, if at all. So this is a good way to kind of store it deep into the ground. Where do you sort of sit? Has this paper and the findings from White Oak Pastures, has it changed your position on regenerative beef? And where do you sort of see this method of animal agriculture fitting into the overall picture and goal of being able to feed 11 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable manner? I think if I step back for a second and you see that, okay, I'm arguing against a term called regenerative agriculture, right? I would like agriculture to be regenerative. I have an issue with the exaggerated claims that's kind of becoming this brand, right? So there's many, like there's something called conservation agriculture that's been done for decades. And even older forms of uh, farming that date back to indigenous management of land in uh, Mesoamerica, uh, which we call it the, uh, the milpa system of farming. This milpa system of farming, they, they did polycultures of uh, beans, maize, and squash. And these three things would... Uh, with very little animal inputs at all, because they didn't even domesticate animals, this fed one of the largest populations on Earth at that time. And I think this is a very important point because we should be looking at history in ways we we farmed great and and learn from cultures that have have done it across the world and are still doing it. Right. So it's been shown that the type of farming and the type of food that uses the least amount of land is plants. This will emit the least amount of carbon. There's not ruminants on the land that are going to be emitting methane, right? So if we can use the least amount of land, grow it in a non-intensive way. We don't need to grow it in monocultures of the same crop. And if we think of kind of monocultures, sometimes you think, okay, switching to, say, a plant-based diet, while well, you might have had in your head told that you're then supporting like an industrial monoculture Keep in mind, at least half or more is actually of those monocultures are fed to confined animals, right? So consuming animal source foods, you're you're going to be either supporting feed crops of monocultures or you're going to be perhaps shifting to this grass-fed system uh, that uses a lot more land. It's been shown that the, the, the best way to feed a growing population, which we, we've been showing in, in a number of studies that you can feed three to four billion more people right now on the same amount of land without more deforestation. And, and that's with a plant-based shift. So what would happen if we were to pivot from conventional sort of factory farming to this regenerative model and produce the same amount of meat that we produce today? If we wanted to not address eating less meat and then all switch to this kind of regenerative beef that we're all being kind of told about in the, in the news and, and everything like that, it would be just mass deforestation. It, it wouldn't be something that people would quickly see. It's not feasible, right? Now, if that message of switching to regenerative agriculture came with the prerequisite of you need to significantly reduce overall meat consumption, then I don't even think we'd be having this conversation because certainly that would be a huge difference. And that would make a big difference in terms of the feasibility of this. And then I'm just thinking in terms of 
say, individual farmers or people that live in a, in a certain area where it's either accurate or they've been told that that land is arid land, it can only be used for grazing. Is that a different circumstance? So you have this plot of land that's there, it's, it's already grasslands, it's not a forest right now. Is that a, is that a different circumstance to uh, what you just described then in terms of expanding into existing forests? It's different in some ways, but this is what's called the marginal land myth. And there's, of course, different types of land, some that are better suited to be grassland. A lot of grassland actually used to be forced, but let's pretend that it's you know a native grassland. A lot of that would, would be better off still being a wilded grassland, not only for biodiversity, but also for carbon sequestration, right? These animals don't need ruminants going through it for it to be, uh, you know, rewilded and beneficial for, for vegetation growth. Uh, that's just been shown across the world. Now, I think there's also a misconception about what crops can grow on kind of marginal, perhaps desertified land. There's lots of crops that are very hardy that can grow on kind of very damaged land. It can go from anything from, you know, quinoa to ancient grains to... Uh, hemp for industrial purposes, things like that. Like there's there's a big list of kind of areas of land that are considered degraded or marginal land that could also support you know farming plants. And the great part about if we switch to this plant based uh, diet overall or or at least in in big strides, we're freeing up so much land. So we don't need all land. We don't need every single square inch of land we're using now. And, and in fact, if we want to address any amount of the biodiversity issues we have, we need to free up land. Do you think a, a, a big problem with people sort of understanding that concept is the fact that regenerative agriculture and the documentaries that have come out very much sell this idea that you need the tramping of the ruminant and you need the ruminant's manure in order to regenerate that land. And, and they show a, a before and after, which looks as if that area of land has rewilded and, and healed. Uh. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. 
Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Do you think that it's harder for people to understand what happens to a piece of land when you just leave it to do what it would naturally? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to a point in the world where that is a very hard thing for people to imagine, that if you leave land B, it'll take care of itself, right? That's not to say that we can't do management things that can help it get better, right? I'm not arguing against that. But the idea that we need to have our hands on every piece of land for it to recover, that's just not true, right? I mean, buy any piece of land in the world, let it be, you're going to see that vegetation is going to grow in, in some sense, right? And I'm not talking areas that are fully desertified, right? I'm talking areas that uh, have had vegetation, that have had forest, have had land that either used to be in good shape or, or can be now. This is, this is what we need to consider is just that you don't necessarily need room and it's on there. And that's not to say that we, we, we shouldn't rewild uh, and introduce, um, say, bison or you know, wild ruins in like a predator-prey relationship. There's lots of studies showing that this would be very beneficial, especially in areas of like, you know, Western U.S. Uh, we need protected areas of land that do have this natural ecosystem that has that. But to then equate that to we need to have cattle ranching, there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference to how even cattle will move in domesticated firm land versus a wild animal. Despite how perfect someone might be managing the herd, there's a, there's a big difference uh, in, in how those react. And, and also just the fact that in, in a predator-prey relationship in the wild, the, the biomass is actually not leaving the land either. Right when it's a cattle farm, they're only living on that land for maybe twenty months, and then they're going to slaughter somewhere. Yeah, I think the the grass fed beef industry is telling a story, which in many ways I can see how it is appealing. I can see how you would look at it, and if you're comparing it to factory farming, it does seem like a much better option. And that may not be backed 100% by science, but to the everyday person who is just looking at intensive factory farming from an ethical perspective uh, and the monocropping of, of feed, if you just visually see that system and then you visually see free-roaming animals in, in grasslands, uh, 
I think most people would put their hand up and say that the, the grass-fed system looks like a better system. But what I'm hearing from you is that this is somewhat of a distraction from what matters most, being that we need to get better at producing more calories from less land. And the most important thing is that we're using too much land right now to produce food. And we need to be carving off a lot of that land and restoring it back to natural ecosystems. My question for you is, does that need to come with some serious incentives for people that own this land? Because that's a, that's a hard thing for people to swallow if you're saying, well, you know, your farm that you're currently using for grass-fed beef would be better off being a, a natural forest. So I think that's where there is, I, I see their position. I can, I can feel their discomfort with, with this part of the conversation. And, and what I'm hoping, and I know that you're hoping, is that we can get to a point where these conversations aren't so divisive. So, you know, based on that and, and the fact that that is a very tricky situation for people that own land, how do you see that playing out? So there's a few things I'd like to say there. So first, if we just kind of break down why grass-fed beef is typically worse. Obviously, there's a spectrum of how grass-fed beef is, is or how cattle are raised, right? But typically, it will emit more methane because they live longer lives because it takes them longer to get to a certain weight to get to slaughter, right? So we're, we're talking a difference of like usually 12 to 14 months when they're in feedlots to anywhere from 20 months to even 30 months. So not, not a big difference in terms of like, you know, they can live 20 years, right? But, but still, that's extra amount of emissions over their lifespan. And then when they're eating grass as more of their diet, this is a more fibrous diet, which makes more belches and, and more methane would, would be emitted. Uh, that's one thing just to, to mention there about grass-fed beef. And of, of course, the, the marketing of grass-fed beef just looks great, right? You see a big field. You see that happy farm that people are used to seeing just when they grow up. That's where they think meat comes from, and they want to believe that. And, and I totally get it. And, and I used to think that. For sure, I used to think that, that that was a better option to switch from cheap meat to kind of local grass-fed beef. But then I just saw some science that convinced me otherwise. And then I just changed some of my behaviors because you know I felt like a bit of a hypocrite. And I was like, no, I like to kind of be in line with what I see as very quality evidence pointing towards the need to go to a, you know, a plant-based diet as much as possible. So you were buying, at, at some stage, you were buying, say, organic, local, grass-fed beef, and you were under the impression that that was better for the environment. Yeah, of course. So when I was doing my master's program at the start of it, that was probably what I was kind of going towards. I was going towards different ways that I can uh, consume better. And I looked at everything. When I first started uh, a lot of my research, it was initially on renewable energy. And I did a case project on agriculture um, and the impact of agriculture on you know greenhouse gases, biodiversity. And I just couldn't believe the uh, damage that our food systems has on overall environmental uh, issues and how little attention it gets compared to uh, you know, the damage of fossil fuels, which of course is huge too, but, you know, th there's a pretty big voice and there's a, there's a pretty big public shift also happening on that side. And I think if we kind of step back away from kind of the, the personal cultural aspects of, of food and we think of, 
beef in comparison to, say, coal, right? You wouldn't be convinced. I mean, most some people still are convinced, but you wouldn't typically be convinced that you know clean coal is the answer. This is what's happening with beef. People are being convinced that we should do beef better, and this is a new, better version of beef. But when you look at the greenhouse gases, the land use, even if it's slightly better compared to what it was before, it's still uh, like multiple, multiple times worse than say a shift to to beans or lentils or a plant based diet. And you know we're talking a difference of like you know typically one kilogram of CO two for for most beans or lentils to at the very lowest around seventeen to twenty for beef, but as high as like a hundred kilograms of CO two. So those numbers might not mean a whole lot to people, but really it just means that it's. It's a, it's a massive difference in shift, and we should be looking at this the same way we look at other damaging environmental aspects of life. And we should, as best as possible, create this world that is is sustainable, and uh, largely beef is not. Okay, so that sort of speaks to, I guess, grass-fed not being this dramatically better system than than conventional. But back to my question around farmers that have this land and people that own this land, this is a hard thing for people to to think about. And, you know, I can I can understand in their position that many of them go, well, the best thing that I can do for my land as a rancher is to do a grass-fed system and, and I'm going to look at uh, regenerative agriculture, let's say. What's your thinking around that? Like, how do we how do we sort of make it more attractive for people to want to go further and not just look at grass fed grazing, but look at solutions that are actually going to get us into a position in two thousand and fifty where we are feeding eleven billion people sustainably. I mean, I love it that you you keep me focused on the solutions because um, it's great because I don't want to just talk about the. The, the damages this industry does, because there's lots of solutions out there. So um, I think we can think of it in a number of different ways. We can look at it from the production side or the consumption side. Now, on the production side, no question about it across the board, farmers and landowners need support for ways that they can manage their land or manage their farm better, whether that's helping our ranchers that want to switch towards growing uh, crops or, or different plant foods, then we should be able to do that. We should be able to support them to do that and make that shift. If it's a matter of planting more trees on your land, right, this is something we should be able to support because it's not only going to be beneficial for carbon sequestration, but it's going to be beneficial for their land, avoiding water runoff. If they're near any sort of waterways, then they're going to avoid a lot of uh, nitrates that will get into to waterways that in many areas of the world, especially in some areas of, say, Florida and the southern U.S., it's created full dead zones in oceans uh, from runoff from farms. So we should be proactive about this and incentivize conservation methods to farming. And if I could provide an example in uh, in Brazil. So the Cerrado region is, um, it's, it's like the most underrated rainforest in the world. Like it's it's, it's uh, of course, in Brazil, you think of the Amazon, right? In this case, the Cerrado uh, holds equivalent of 13.7 uh, billion tons of CO2. And again, that number might not sound like people might not know what that means. That's equivalent to uh, China's annual emissions. The annual emissions in China is equivalent to the amount being drawn down in this in the Cerrado rainforest, right? So if we can visualize that, well, how do we protect that? Well, there's a problem there in the sense of 
landowners are allowed to deforest 80% of their land. Okay. Well, we need to incentivize that not to happen. And if that's a matter of you know global cooperation, there should be, because it shouldn't all fall on, say, Brazil to do this. Because of course, in Europe, it's not much different historically, right? Like a lot of Europe used to be very much full of forests, right? So of course, a country like Brazil might want to, uh, you know, make use of their land and make money and and grow their economy, right? So it's not like we can't we can just shift blame to say the global south because the global north has has done it historically. We've deforested a lot of land too. So just we need to think of this kind of land ownership in the same way we think of. Uh, carbon budgets and carbon credits, because if we don't, we're just going to have a whole lot of land deforested. We're not going to hit any of our climate goals, and everything's going to be a lot more expensive in the end versus being proactive about it and supporting landowners and farmers right now. Yeah, gosh, I mean, existing rainforests and you know forests in general should it should just be a no brainer that we are doing whatever we can as one population being every country in the world working together to protect those. So I don't know how we get there, but um, I just see that as priority number one, not doing any further damage to <laughs> to the current uh, situation that we, we find ourselves in. So, um, you know, we're not going to solve this right here today on this podcast because this is incredibly nuanced, but I, I, I think you've given a, a really good sort of overview of, what are, what are the most important things that we're thinking about here and, and not getting distracted by clever marketing and, and, and greenwashing, I guess, and, and just coming back and, and, and realizing that the most important thing that we can do as populations but also as an individual is, is consuming calories that are grown from, from less land. And if we can do that, that's a big part of this uh, climate change puzzle. And, and getting ourselves out of the situation we find ourselves in. So this sort of has me thinking and, and wondering at the 2015 Paris Agreement, which I know that you're very familiar with, was there, was there a, a real focus on rewilding? And if not, why do you think that was, was the case and how important is it, do you think, to get countries around the world coming together to commit to prioritizing rewilding you know, across the world? It was not a focus at all. It wasn't even mentioned, I don't think. The rewilding wasn't a thing. Actually, you know, to be frank, food was not really a major aspect of the Paris Agreement. Uh, even what people that attended this event were served, it was all very high-emitting food. So the, the, the food itself served there was, was you, you know, your, your most high-emitting beef. Uh, anyway... If we look at the governmental organizations that are working on this now, though, just in you know five years since then, six years since then, it's a huge, huge shift. You have WWF that's making significant strides in uh, what they call a planet-based diet. This is a whole program that is a, a major shift towards um, you know a plant-based diet. And this year is going to be a big year for all this because there's the the UN Food Systems Summit. And what's going to happen is they're trying to create a global governmental agreement on, you know, what is appropriate for each country, for each region on what amount of shifts we can do. And opening that conversation is important because it is different in each country, right? There's different cultural aspects to consider. Certainly the the big burden to shift food towards plant-based should absolutely first be in rich countries because this is where you're going to get the most result. 
And it's also going to be much more ethical to do this because if you are, are just trying to do this in poorer countries, then you're also not understanding the issues of food security, right? Uh, which absolutely is something we need to address too. But the good news with all this is uh, th- this is going to be one of the biggest you know, commitments around food that has ever existed. And I, I just hope that there's also, what also comes with this is action and implementation because the Paris Agreement in itself was also popular, but largely failed. And it is failing because we're not even close to the targets across the world. Um, but I'm pretty optimistic that this year with food, with this food system summit, that it will make uh, a big shift to, to help those landowners and farmers get the support they need to manage their land and uh, reforest and allow areas to be protected and rewilded um, finally. So is, is the idea of this summit to, to have countries come together and make further agreements sort of as an extension of, of the Paris Agreement? It's like new agreements. It's new agreements focused on food. It's, there's certainly going to be aspects of the Paris Agreement involved just in terms of different strategies used, what they can learn from this agreement, how they can actually set targets that are you know, achievable and enforceable in different ways. And, um, you know, I, I think of groups like Eat Lancet and uh, you know, IPCC, WWF. These are all huge groups that are now focused on food in the way that it should be, not just for greenhouse gases, but for biodiversity and a way that we can coexist with nature that, that we need to uh, going forward. And uh, I think this is, a, this is a great first opportunity to, to kind of see where we go for kind of global cooperation on this stuff. Let's, let's pivot to... Uh, Regenuary, and some of this will be some sort of some themes that we've already spoken about, so we can kind of refer back where uh, we need to. This Regenuary campaign, I believe, uh, has come out of the, the UK and is led by a meat company, I think, that are ironically are called Ethical Butchers, and they have made a, a series of, of different claims and, and they sound uh, to an extent like they have some good intentions with, with what they're trying to achieve. I like the fact that they, they want to open a conversation with vegans, with people eating plant-based diets. I'm not sure whether they have totally hit the mark there in terms of getting people on side and doing that in a manner where there will be healthy conversation. But I thought it could be a good idea to go through some of the claims they're making with you and get your feedback from a, a scientific point of view on, in terms of the environmental science. One of the major sort of claims, it seems like, just to follow on from our last conversation, that for a while there, grass-fed beef was very much up against conventional and, and you know, for, for a decade or decades, they were very much trying to prove that they're better than conventional beef. And now that conversation has shifted to where they obviously feel threatened by plant-based foods and the plant-based movement, and particularly in UK because that is a a very thriving uh, vegan and and plant-based market. So they've turned their attention to to sort of veganism and and are trying to cast doubt on a vegan diet being uh, good for the environment. Now, one of the first claims that I, th- I thought we could go through is that they infer that they kept seeing ads about vegan junk food from sort of fast food companies and, and they were inspired to start Regenuary from that. What do you, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I think this is trying to 
make veganism look like it's this industrial uh, monocropped system overall, right? And I think this is this is a way of kind of framing it as you know a diet that's not environmentally friendly. And that's totally not the case, right? Because the impact of, you know, whether something's grown organically or if there's some synthetic fertilizers used, uh, it it does shift the needle. And there is is ways to grow, um, you know, plant foods organically, uh, sustainably for uh, online for for, uh, in a number of ways. But, um, But the difference between a shift from like, say, an animal source diet of any kind to a plant-based diet is such a huge difference in terms of the greenhouse gas impact, the biodiversity, the land use, where that other little shift to organic can be helpful, but it's it's a smaller difference between the two. So, uh, you know, framing it against, uh, you know, these bigger plant-based companies, like I get it. This is, this is, of course, what they would want to frame it as, but that's not the case. And of course, someone can go with a whole food plant-based diet. And that's not even to say that these plant-based products aren't, um, you know, environmentally friendly because in many ways they're a, a major improvement. Um, and not to mention that they could also continue improving as well. They could source their products in different ways. They could provide, you know, this, this plant-based burger in, in various formats too that might be better. I think one of the, the largest studies, and there's been quite a few all coming to the same conclusion on the the greenhouse gas sort of footprint of different dietary patterns is a paper that came out of John Hopkins University in in Baltimore. You'd be familiar with that, and it's one that I, I think I, I have included uh, in my book. They looked at uh, around 140 different countries, and one of those was the United Kingdom. They were they were in there, and on average, a Moving from an average UK diet, this is UK data, moving from an average UK diet to a, a, a vegan diet reduced the greenhouse gas environmental footprint by 70%, I think. So it, it's, it's a huge reduction. And, and even a flexitarian diet, I should add, reduced the greenhouse gas footprint by over 50%. And that, that was what they called a sort of two-thirds vegan diet. So it shows that you can significantly reduce your greenhouse gas footprint simply by starting to make those changes, starting to swap meat out for legumes, and you're, you're already making a you know, massive reduction in your footprint. Absolutely. This is exactly the case. It doesn't need to be an all-or-nothing conversation. I think this is um, a bit um, uh, detrimental to the shift because – Individual choice, I think we should consider it that it's not always individual. We have so many influences on on people's food choices, whether it's industry marketing, whether it's governmental subsidies to make certain certain types of foods more available than others, the insidious aspects of what food is available in schools and hospitals, right? So this makes the individual choice to kind of, you know, choose better plant-based foods, a very difficult one. And I also think this is an opportunity. This is something we know. If we can make something more accessible and, and present it in nice ways, like you know, the, the way you do, of course, in, in different ways on, uh, on, on your, your plant-proof page, like it, there's just so many 
beautiful ways to present this food. And of course, this is a, a challenge for the meat industry when they see this, right? This is a challenge when they see that, uh, wow, it can be not only uh, delicious to make a switch, but it's uh, becoming more accessible and there's all kinds of new recipes. And this is the way we can help cater towards helping that individual choice, you know, be a lot easier. Yeah, the, I mean, the sustainable option needs to be the right price and it needs to taste just as good. And if, if you can get there, then it makes it very easy for everyone to adopt a diet that has a, a low environmental footprint. So I agree with you. It's not about being perfect. We don't live in a perfect world right now at least. Um, but when you sit down and when you go to the store and when you order at a cafe, you can always think back, what's the most environmental, environmentally friendly option I can make right now? you know, with my budget, for my family, for myself. If, if I can just talk to like myself personally, like this is something that encouraged me as well to make that shift because, you know, at the time when I was uh, uh, studying in my master's, it was not as accessible to make the switches to say solar panels. And of course I could reduce some energy consumption that I did. And, uh, you know, I live in Canada, so insulate the house better and, and things like that. These are things that came to mind. But uh, it can also get very, very expensive trying to do these things, right? Where with food, I mean, it's it's not necessarily the case. You make this choice three times a day. You can make steps towards better choices. As you know, things like legumes and certain other plant-based foods can be very inexpensive as well. So this is a way that you can make that sustainable choice. You can lower your ecological footprint and you have control, relative control over this, this option. Another uh, claim or, or sort of strategy used by Regenuary in particular was this idea of choosing one plant food and, and sort of creating a bit of a, a straw man argument. Uh, for example, they they argue that regenerative beef is better for the environment than avocados because avocados, along with many plant uh, foods, are largely imported into the United Kingdom. Can you explain why, uh, you know, based on the science we have, and we have spoken about this in previous episodes, but it's good to go back over. Can you explain why this isn't such a, a sound argument? I mean, to compare beef to avocados is, it's a very poor comparison, right? Not only because avocados are consumed by omnivores as well, uh, but people aren't making the swap from beef to avocados. So it's a, it's a very poor comparison off the bat. So, but we can entertain it, right? We can entertain it. We can see, okay, well, what are they saying? Are avocados worse than beef? And across the board, no, they're not. That's not to say that the way avocados are grown couldn't be improved. Of course they can be. But in terms of greenhouse gas impacts, you're talking a difference of typically avocados are 1.3 kilograms of CO2 equivalent to grow. That's just the equivalent emissions that that would uh, generate. And on average, beef is 28. So right off the bat, it's a huge difference. And uh, then you look at, okay, how much beef do people consume and how much avocados do people consume? Right. And then that doesn't make that picture look any clearer. So, I mean, we can look at the numbers, but I mean, overall, it's just not a very good comparison at all. So, if you instead compare it from beef to lentils or beans or, you know, soybeans, uh, then, you know, beef remains around 28, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more. And lentils is, is about one kilogram, or, and uh, soybeans is even less. 
So just greenhouse gases alone, it's such a huge difference. But I think an issue with, if I can kind of go on a bit of a tangent on the issue with environmentalism, there's there's certain niches that people cling to, right? And like the, you, you put all the focus on, on climate change and greenhouse gases. I think we need to consider that environmental issues don't happen in isolation. There's biodiversity, there's land use, there's the ethical aspects of food, not only from animals, but also for labor. So there's many ways we can make that better across the board. And we shouldn't be looking at just one little thing and making that comparison to one, one choice or the other. We should look at the overall picture as best as possible. And if we can kind of tie back to something we talked about at the very start of this conversation, that's something that researchers that look at, say, white oak pastures, they're only looking at uh, greenhouse gases. They might say that they're improving biodiversity on their regenerative firm. Sure, they have some more birds that show up on their land. That's not the biodiversity that we want. We want larger mammals. We want a diversity of animals. We want somewhere like a rainforest in, in Cerrado that holds 5% of all biodiversity in the world. These are the areas that we need to protect. And even if it's areas that you know aren't a rainforest, there's so much more biodiversity we can have by just rewilding an area. So this is this comparison of beef and avocados. I mean, it's 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 just ridiculous. And we spoke about transport and and importing food and and the percentage of a food's greenhouse gas uh, environmental footprint that comes from from transport. Can you just refer back to that? We spoke about it in, in a previous episode, but can you refer back to why this argument around well? avocados or, or plant foods in, in general, many of them are imported into the UK. Why that in and of itself isn't a, a great argument around the environmental friendliness of a food? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of studies that show the environmental impact of transportation of food is very little compared to what or how it's produced. So for most foods, it's less than 10% of the total ecological footprint of that food. For beef in itself, 0.5%, not even 1%, is the transportation of beef, right? So if you're talking avocados shipped across the world, you know, it's easy to intuitively think that's not a good thing. But the science shows that it's that's not what matters necessarily with food. It's how much methane is emitted, how much deforestation was involved. These are the things that really move the needle in the biggest impact of that food. So really to reduce your, your overall footprint of food, you should be focusing on what you eat and not whether it's local. And if I could just kind of add a caveat there, because people always have lots of questions when I say something like that. That's not to say that you shouldn't support, you know, local plant-based farmers. And this is not, you know, this is an environmental argument there. Of course, supporting your local economy in different ways is beneficial. Knowing where your food has come from, this is great. But for, for food itself, for the environmental impact, we need to look at what is produced more so than where it comes from. And when we do that, then we can kind of start getting to a lower footprint for food. Yeah, it's about priorities. What's, what's the biggest lever that you can pull? The biggest lever is eating more plant foods. And once you've done that, then yeah, even buying local, you, you just said then the, the average is around 10%. There's a little bit extra there that you can get as a, as a cherry on top. That's sort of the, the way I like to see it in addition to what you're saying about supporting uh, the local community. There's a quote from Hannah, Dr. Hannah Ritchie 
and I'll, I'll link this. This is the same reference that I think we spoke to last time who, who speaks on this issue of, of local versus imported. Uh, she says, whether you buy it from the farmer next door or from far away, it is not the location that makes the carbon footprint of your dinner large, but the fact that it's beef. Exactly. Couldn't say it better myself. This is exactly what it is. And it does go against the uh, idea of buying local. Uh, but I think we just need to kind of think, why are we thinking this? Why would this necessarily be the right choice? And for food, it's been shown in study after study that that's not the case. It's what you're eating that matters. Yeah. And I think we should just reiterate, that's not data from a single study. This this data specifically in the reference that I'm going to put in there is a, a meta-analysis. It's more than 38,000 commercial farms from 119 countries, uh, including the United States, Australia, the UK, New Zealand, countries like that. Um, so this is, is not a cherry-picked statistic. It's the, the, the fact that the, where your food comes from makes up a very small amount of its greenhouse gas environmental footprint is very well studied. If I zoom back out and think about an individual being motivated to make changes to their plate and this idea that we need to restore natural carbon sinks and biodiversity, we need to have some visual references, some better visual references of, of what this rewilding looks like. Because I think the, the grass-fed beef industry has done a good job in, you know, you, you've made it clear that it, it's not supported by science, but they've done a, a, a good job to give you the illusion that they're the solution to regenerating land and, and being a solution to climate change. Seeing land go from being used for food and creating a lot of greenhouse gases to being rewilded and to visually see that and see the biodiversity come back and these large mammals that you're talking about would make it so much easier for people to, to understand when you adopt a plant-based or vegan diet or something close, when you start to move that way, you are contributing to that rewilding. That, that will be really powerful. And I think, you know, David Attenborough's documentary, it, while it didn't show that sort of specifically, it did speak to that. And I think that's an important thing to sort of come back to because we can be eating and going to the grocery store, but we're so distant from that. We're so, most of us in cities are just so distant from that. So I would like to see some productions, hopefully in the next few years, that really can document that in, in, a, in a visual manner. But in addition to that, I think it pays for everybody to get out to nature, get out to national parks, get amongst these forests, because when you're in them, you're going to be constantly reminded how rich in biodiversity they are, how important they are, and it's going to make the changes that you've made to your diet just seem so much more meaningful. Totally. And I, I couldn't say it better myself. We need to create this visual image of rewilding because... This is exactly what regenerative agriculture and this holistic grazing movement is going up against, right? They're trying to say that they're the form of biodiversity and these lush grasslands, that's what we need. We can have grasslands on their own and they'll create biodiversity on their own. They'll have carbon sequestration on their own. They won't have methane emitting animals on it um, that are domesticated like that. So if we can help people visualize these rewilded areas that go along with this plant-based shift, that would just do wonders. 
Yeah, I think that a big part of that is is us getting our head around the fact that not all land and not all grassland that we look at is meant for food production because that is sort of a, an assumption that that tends to be made. It's like, well, why are we assuming that all of that land should be should be used for food production in the first place when we can produce more calories from from less land and and leave that land alone? The the bit that you said before, I think, was interesting around uh, human labor uh, or human rights issues with food production. I just wanted to add on the, on the avocado example because I had uh, I was sent a few articles around human rights issues with avocado production. Uh, I think this serves as a good example to sort of speak to what you were saying earlier that uh, we can focus on many things and not just have to drill down onto one. And I read these and and. And I think if there are human rights issues with any of our food, we should be concerned. It doesn't matter whether it's a plant or animal origin, we should all be concerned by that. Um, and I read these and, and there does seem to like there are some issues in certain parts of the world, be it, be it Mexico or, or Kenya. And uh, I'm by no means an expert after a, a week of reading this stuff. So I, it's, it's on my list to, to learn more about. But I don't think it should distract us from the fact that the science clearly shows eating more plants is the best way to create an environmentally friendly diet. And at the same time, it doesn't discount the potential human rights issues that are happening there. And that should be something else that we go and look into and decide, well, do we want to check where our avocados are coming from? Or do we want to stop buying the avocados? Or do we want to contact the producer of the avocados and express our concern for what we've read? And I think that should be the way we approach it rather than creating a, an argument that, well, because there's human rights issues, we should discard the science and just eat beef. That, that seems like uh, a, a step in the wrong direction for me. Couldn't agree more. And uh, of, of course, with conditions in, in slaughterhouses, there's all kinds of human rights issues going on there too, which, which also was apparent you know, in the past year during COVID when there was just massive spikes of outbreaks in in these confined areas that had all kinds of you know human rights issues. But you know, when it comes to a plant based shift, we shouldn't just be content with that. We should always be checking our own choices we're making, not just with food, with with life as a whole. You know, what are we doing? How can we do better? And I think we'd be we'd be off to a good start. Maybe to to sort of round this one out, because I would like to to hope we can have something productive come out of this that uh, perhaps anyone listening who is involved in regenerative agriculture or holistic grazing or regenuary uh, finds useful. Where do you see us in this conversation going from here? We've got two sides that are violently opposed to, to, to one another and, and, and unable at times to sort of hold a productive conversation. What's your view on on how we can move forward from here? Is there a way that the two communities can come together and it will mean you know less division and, and faster change? I think we need to find commonality. I think we need to continue having discussions. I don't think uh, either side should cling to certain ideas or beliefs or even evidence that they see. Be open. Consider new things. Um, you know, I've changed my opinion a number of times on just whatever current stance I had on regenerative agriculture. Typically, what I see as a commonality is we need to all agree that 
expanding agriculture is not an option. And the main way you're going to expand agriculture land in the world is going to be shifting to more grass-fed systems, whether it's regenerative or close to it, right? So I think there's a global consensus on, like th- these arguments aren't playing out with groups like the IPCC, uh, World Wildlife Fund, major, major organizations that are working on food system change, climate scientists. These debates aren't playing out there. They're playing out in in communities. They're playing out on social media. They're playing out in this kind of narrative of, marketing of different products. And that's not that's not to discount to say that's not real. We should still consider that that's happening. But we should also think of why we think this. Is this something that we should consider as the best form of evidence when we're advertised from a company like McDonald's that they have a grass-fed beef burger that maybe looks better? This is not something we should think as a good quality evidence that we should believe. So I think both sides, and me included, just remain open, continue questioning our own beliefs. And from that, I think we'll get to a point where we can find commonality and agree on what would be a good solution going forward. Very well said. Is there anything that you feel we haven't covered in in this sort of follow-up conversation or anything else that you'd like to add about regenerative agriculture or regenuary or uh, anything to do with our food production? I think regenerative agriculture can be a movement on its own within the plant-based community in itself. And I think that that's something that we should consider as an aspect of how we source food as well, because there's so many aspects of regenerative agriculture that actually are plant-based, right? Using green manures, using cover crops on farms, uh, growing a diversity of of plants. This is all things that also happen on, you know, so-called regenerative farms, right? So these things are commonalities. These are things that we should consider as, as a great source. When it comes to feeding the soil, you just want to feed the soil nutrients, right? And you can do that in a number of different ways. You can do that through manure, synthetic fertilizers, uh, compost, and there's ways of doing it good or bad in each way. So I think we should consider overall that regenerative agriculture can mean many things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean expanding uh, grazing because in that sense, that would be expanding agriculture, which would be encroaching on nature, which we can't do. Um, So, you know, if I could just wrap up with that, people can look at all kinds of different firms that are doing it better on the the plant-based side as well and support them. Um, With regards to, to white oak pastures that I mentioned at the very start, people can read the, the write-up I did on that, which was very, um, you know, it, it's not a, in a peer-reviewed journal, but it quotes tons and tons of peer-reviewed research in, on the matter. And uh, you can just find that on, on my social media linked on there. And, and read both studies. Absolutely. Read, read the other study that, that looks at white oak pastures. Consider that. And, and read mine. And, uh, and I wrote it with uh, the co-author, uh, Dr. Tushar Mehta, and he did a phenomenal job looking at this. So, um, yeah, if I could just wrap it up and remain open and kind of, you know, look at all sides and decide for yourself what you think would be a good good way of, of feeding a growing population. Beautifully said. I'll, I will put that that review into the show notes so people can find that directly. And, and I encourage everyone to, to follow Tushar and Nicholas both on Twitter, um, you know, always posting great content in terms of environmental science and, and the latest evidence around the impact of our food choices. I should uh, add one last thing that we didn't speak about. I actually 
uh, it was it was nice to see the lead researcher. I think she was the lead researcher of the White Oaks Pastures paper acknowledge that the science and the data has never shown that their beef is carbon neutral or carbon negative. Uh, it will be interesting to see if any of the companies or people or proponents of regenerative agriculture are sort of away from the, the science side who have been making those claims uh, change their position in the coming months or, or year. I'll be waiting. I'll be looking forward to seeing that change. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we can celebrate on a future episode when that happens. <laughs> Sounds good, man. All right. Thanks, Nicholas. Okay. Thanks. See you, Simon. Well, there we go. If I was to summarize this in one sentence, I would say, let's stop distracting ourselves and others from what matters most, producing more calories from less land and rewilding the earth. The single best way each of us can impact this is by eating more whole plants, less ultra-processed foods, and less animal products. Personally, I'm extremely optimistic that this idea of rewilding the earth will continue to make its way into mainstream conversation in the coming few years as more and more studies are published and and more and more countries begin to realize that they can no longer ignore the health of the planet. While I would like to think it's because our governments care about the environment, sadly, I think the move to protect our environment will, for the most part, be motivated by economic reasons. Climate change is set to cause gigantic economic disturbance and if we fail to act, countries quite literally cannot afford what's predicted to come. But to be honest, we can't have it all. Regardless of the intentions behind change, it's the end result that matters most and I'm sure you would agree we are all better off if our planet is thriving us and the future generations that we hand this place down to. We are just so lucky that we do have science and we we do have a path out of this. Green energy and green food both being big, big parts of the puzzle. I'll leave you with that optimism to ponder. And remember, as I've said countless times and mentioned in this episode, no matter what changes you are making, or have made to your plate, if you are conscious of your food choices, reducing animal products and eating more plants, you're moving in that direction, then you are part of the solution, not the problem. I'm not concerned with the dietary label. I don't think we should be. And I'm in your corner no matter where you are on your journey. Finally, if you did enjoy today's episode, both Nicholas and I would love to hear your feedback or any questions on social media. Let's keep the conversation going. Nicholas's page is at Nicholas D. Carter. Mine is at plant underscore proof. And you can find both of us on Instagram and Twitter. And if you haven't left a review on the Apple Podcast app and are an Apple user, I would be so appreciative if you could take one or two minutes to do so. It really does help others find the show. Thanks for hanging out with me all the way until the end. I appreciate you. Let's do this again next week in a brand new episode with neurologists Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai on omega-3s. What's the role of omega-3s? What are the different types? 
How much do children, adults and the elderly need? Where can we get them from? And more as we unpack findings from their latest reviews of the literature. Have a fabulous week, friends, and I look forward to seeing you then.